How old were you when you learned how to sing Happy Birthday to you? If you're like me, you probably don't remember. It feels like you've known the song forever. It's just a song that we've always sung to people when they celebrate the anniversary of their birth. Needless to say, the song is pretty popular. So popular, in fact, that the Guinness Book of World Records has declared that Happy Birthday is the most well-known song in the English language. But for all its popularity, Happy Birthday is a relatively simple piece of music. It's only eight bars long and uses a mere six words. Oddly, though, for a song so simple, very few people can tell you anything about its history, which, as I recently learned, is a lot more complex than the song's composition. So complex that we're not even really sure who owns the song. We don't know if anyone owns the song. We don't even really know who wrote it. And recently, all that not knowing turned into a contentious court battle that could decide where and when you are allowed to sing Happy Birthday. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. For the last century, it's been a generally accepted idea that someone owned the song Happy Birthday. Since 1988, that someone has been a music publishing company named Warner Chapel Music. Warner Chapel earns a nice chunk of change off of Happy Birthday, somewhere to the tune of $2 million per year, which is pretty amazing for a song that old. Anyone that used the song publicly, whether it was a waiter in a restaurant singing to a patron or a Hollywood movie that featured a birthday scene, they had to pay Warner Chapel. This is just the way things have been for the longest time. Before we talk more about Warner Chapel, please allow me to introduce you to a documentary filmmaker named Jennifer Nelson. She wasn't always a documentary filmmaker and took a kind of unique path to get there. I took a little bit of a circuitous route into the film world. And, um, yeah, I was racing professionally as a downhill mountain bike racer on the national tour and the X Games. And I um, ended up doing some stunts and some movies. I was a stunt double in the IMAX Everest. And um, I did some adventure shows. And I was on TV doing some documentaries. And I just thought, well, this is fun. Jennifer Nelson was also a prolific sports writer at the time and wanted to transition from being a professional writer and athlete who's often in documentaries to making them herself. And so, from ESPN's X Games, by way of the Everest IMAX movie, which is a really great film if you've never seen it, Jennifer Nelson decided to retire from downhill mountain bike racing and begin a career making documentary films. After earning a degree from the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, Nelson became an extremely prolific documentarian. Her new career choice led her to work at an MTV reality show that you've probably heard of. I ended up on a show for MTV called My Super Sweet 16, which is about lavish, over-the-top birthday parties. And people spend, you know, half a million dollars on these ridiculous parties for 16-year-olds. And, you know, they get two cars for their birthday or have elephants that show up or they dye their dogs pink too because they have a pink themed party and I mean there was ridiculous crazy over the top parties and these were real these were actually like real things that people were paid for while the parents were paying for lavish parties the television show was paying to use the song that everyone would sing before the cake was cut as you can imagine when you're working on a show about teenagers 16th birthday parties it's a little hard to escape the song happy birthday 
And when you're filming those parties, it's a little hard to escape the song's economic side. In the film business, you have to pay for the Happy Birthday song because it's under copyright. And I always thought that that was weird. And, you know, everybody in the business treats that as like this ridiculous notion that you have to pay for Happy Birthday. It's always this inconvenience because it comes up all the time. Every time you're filming a documentary, it's always somebody's birthday. But you can never use the scene because you have to pay for it. So on My Super Sweet 16, we paid for that song over and over and over again because, you know, the song was a huge part of the show. So I was aware of this sort of dark side to this happy tune. After working on My Super Sweet 16 for a while, Jennifer Nelson started to want to produce her own documentaries. Obviously, she needed to choose a subject for her first film. After working so closely with Happy Birthday, that song was at the top of her ideas list. I just thought it was really interesting. And the fact that it's the world's most famous song, and yet nobody knows anything about it, who wrote it, where it came from, why it's so important to us. I just thought it was an interesting topic. It'd be an interesting subject for a film, and I wanted to start producing my own films. And so I I started doing some research. Nelson's research led her to two sisters that were born shortly after the American Civil War ended in the mid-19th century. Their names were Patty and Mildred Hill. The Hill sisters were born and raised in a Kentucky town named Anchorage, located just outside of Louisville. They had a unique upbringing and a father whose attitudes towards a woman's role in society went counter to traditions of that time. Their father actually encouraged them to be strong, independent women. Their father told them, get educated, you know, don't rely on a guy, make your own money, pave your own way. I mean, he was, he encouraged these women to really strike out on their own and, and be entrepreneurial. And um, that was a very different thought back in, the, in that time, in the late 1800s. After graduating from college, the Hill sisters became teachers at a progressive school for young children called the Louisville Experimental Kindergarten School. This school was unique. They were one of the first in the United States to embrace a new revolutionary idea called kindergarten. These women were way ahead of their time, and um, they played a huge role in the kindergarten movement and the early childhood education. I mean, where would we be without kindergarten? You know, school for children was sort of unstructured, and, you know, they were creating a structure, creating a routine, creating... Um, ways of learning that that helped children and, and these things that they created continue on today. It's hard to imagine not having kindergarten, but back in the late 1800s, it was a new idea and considered experimental. In those days, a significant portion of the United States population couldn't even read and didn't really emphasize the importance of education at all, let alone for young kids. Childhood education was not well understood, and the Hill Sisters' experiments and observations in the field were very progressive and became part of the foundation for our modern education system. One of the ways they experimented in teaching young children was through music. Part of that kindergarten movement was to develop songs that were easy for children to learn and memorize and repeat, and the Hills worked very, very hard trying to create songs for children. In the evenings, they would, Mildred would uh, compose the songs and she would write the piano music and Patty would write the lyrics. 
And then they would come to the classroom in the morning, share these songs, practice them on the children. If the children didn't get it, they would go home and revise the song and come again the next morning and practice it. And over and over and over again, they practiced these songs. The Hill Sisters went through this creative process quite a bit and became extremely prolific songwriters. The Hills published many books. Song Stories for the Kindergarten was their first book with all these different children's songs. And that book was so popular that it was featured at the uh, World's Fair in Chicago. And they were very highly respected among their colleagues and everybody wanted to know what these children's songs were so that they could sing them in their classrooms. And I mean, these these ladies were, were quite popular in their time. Song Stories for the Kindergarten was published in 1893, the same year the United States President Grover Cleveland granted amnesty for polygamy inside the Mormon religion. Sorry, I just thought that was kind of interesting. But anyway. One of the songs from that book became a surprise hit. Good Morning to All was a song that, that really worked for the children. It was easy to memorize, and it just caught on. You know, the tune is, is very easy. It's only The song is only six words, and... Um, and that's how that song started taking off. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Good morning, dear children. Good morning to all. Good morning to all was designed to be a song a teacher could greet their students with at the start of a day. The kids would all sing along and it would kind of focus the class. The song was copyrighted in 1893 when the Hill Sisters published their book. I'm sure you recognize the melody. It's the same melody as Happy Birthday. At some point, the lyrics evolved, and it's not hard to see why they evolved. The melody worked great for the children, so why not adapt the tune for situations beyond simply the greeting at the beginning of a school day? But that does bring up the next question. Who was the songwriter who substituted the lyrics Good Morning to All with Happy Birthday to You? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's not exactly clear who wrote the song. I mean, certainly Mildred and Patty Hill wrote Good Morning to All, which has the same melody as Happy Birthday with different lyrics. And in the turn of the century, that melody had many different lyrics to go with it, like Happy Thanksgiving to you, Happy Holiday to you. There were many, many different versions of that song with the same melody. Happy Birthday was one of many of those songs. The records are a little confusing. I mean, in, in Patty Hill's deposition during a lawsuit that they had when they sued their publisher, she said she wrote the lyrics. But there's nothing to attribute her as the author to the to the song. So, I mean, you can assume the Hills wrote it, but they never took credit for it. They never copyrighted it. Um, and the records are very vague. Out of all the permutations of the song, Happy Birthday emerged as the most popular. Believe it or not, birthdays were not always celebrated. Birthday parties were not really a thing people did until the late 1800s. As birthday parties rose in popularity, they started to become part of the cultural tradition. Various rituals such as cake cutting and singing became part of that tradition. Happy Birthday to You emerged as the song of choice and soon became ubiquitous. It was used in movies, singing telegrams, and, true to its roots, sung in classrooms when a student had a birthday. 
Now, everyone knows the song, but no one really knows who wrote it, or more specifically, who wrote the lyrics. As Jennifer Nelson said, the records are vague, and this vagueness has created a void in ownership. For reasons we'll get into a bit later, Warner Chapel Music Publishing has been able to step into this void and assume ownership of the song. And so, while working on her documentary about Happy Birthday, Jennifer Nelson did what she watched MTV do for every single episode of My Super Sweet 16. She asked Warner Chapel for the right to use the song in her film. I inquired about getting a license from Warner and um, paid $1,500 for a license. Nelson's film didn't have a large budget. In fact, it was self-financed. That means every dollar she spent making the film came out of her own pocket. That was $1,500 that could be used for other things, like maybe her rent or student loans from graduate school. Being forced to spend all that money on a song that is 120 years old was unsettling, to say the least. But soon after paying Warner Chapel's price, Jennifer Nelson's research led her to some revealing information that really rubbed salt in the proverbial wounds. When I was doing research on the song and going into the history of the song, I found an legal article by Professor Braunice who challenged the copyright claim to the song. He challenged uh, Warner Chapel's copyright claim. Robert Braunice is a professor of law at George Washington University. In 2010, he published an article in a legal journal that makes the argument that Happy Birthday is not owned by anyone and is in the public domain. Professor Braunice wasn't interviewed for this episode, but his article was the spark that instigated a lot of this story. It was a bit shocking to think that Warner might not actually own the song. And that just really struck me like, wait a second, you know, is this possible? Is this true? Is this, you know, can they get away with that? Like, I had tons of different thoughts and emotions. And so, after discovering that Warner Chapel's ownership of the song is somewhat precarious, Jennifer Nelson started to think about challenging the music publishing company and decided to get some advice. So I take it to my lawyer, Randall Newman, and said, hey, look, look at this article, and I don't know what to think of this. And I mean, he was shocked that the song was copyrighted and he had to pay for it. He, was, he didn't believe me. He was like, what? You have to pay for that big birthday song? I said, yeah. And um, so he thought uh, the article was very uh, convincing and, um, and interesting. And then we took it to uh, Mark Rifkin at Wolf Haldenstein. She was introduced to me by my co-counsel, Randy Newman. As I'm sure you guessed, that's Mark Rifkin, a lawyer at the law firm Wolf Haldenstein and one of the lawyers representing Jennifer Nelson in the Happy Birthday lawsuit. Randy did some additional research and concluded that there was no copyright in the song. So he called me and he asked if I would get involved. And when I read the law review article and then I saw the additional research that Randy has done, I thought, boy, this is great. What a, what a unique opportunity to be part of, uh, you know, really what I thought was a pretty historical undertaking. On June 13th, 2013, now with their team fully formed, Jennifer Nelson, Mark Rifkin, Randall Newman, and a few other people involved filed a class action lawsuit disputing the ownership of Happy Birthday. And the world's reaction was huge. Articles in major newspapers everywhere announced that the self-financed documentary filmmaker and her legal team were going to take on one of the most powerful music publishers in the world. Everyone, from vociferous public domain advocates to the common person who had really just learned that the song was owned by anyone, threw their support behind them. Even television personalities voiced their opinion. 
Stephen Colbert, the American comedian who, back in 2013, hosted The Colbert Report, weighed in. Warner Music contentiously owns the copyright to the song and has been earning millions from people celebrating their birthdays for a quarter of a century. And Warner is so protective of the song that even to sing happy birthday in a restaurant, at a concert, or public place, you must pay royalties. Don't believe these people are serious about protecting their intellectual property? Marilyn Monroe sang it to President Kennedy, and one year later, they were both dead. I know, I know. It's been unbelievable. The attention to the song and the litigation has been astounding. And it's, you know, I think it's just one of those things. It, it kind of resonates with everybody because, you know, who hasn't enjoyed having the song sung to them? Who hasn't enjoyed singing it to somebody else? And anybody who's heard that, you know, somebody owns a copyright to that song kind of looks funny and says, really? So it's just one of those things. It just kind of, not to use a, you know, the wrong metaphor, but it kind of just struck a, you know, a, a chord with that, with everyone. Appropriately phrased, they indeed struck a chord with the public, but more importantly, they needed to strike a chord with the judge presiding over the case. To do that, they needed to know everything about the song. It was time to study up and hit the books. We did an enormous amount of historical research. We looked at virtually every record we could locate and, and get our hands on, both having to do with the copyright records and also having to do with the song. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's a tough thing to do because you sort of have to prove a negative fact. You have to prove that nobody has a copyright and nobody registered a copyright. So it's easy enough to look at the records and see what the records are, but it's also a little bit harder to, to prove that negative. Proving a negative fact is not easy, especially when you're going against the legal resources of a company like Warner Chapel, who, of course, also had a well-researched argument. Well, Warner's argument boiled down to this. We have a copyright, and that copyright has the words to the song on it, and therefore we're entitled to claim a copyright to the words to the song. Even though Warner Chapel is the music publisher named in the lawsuit, most of these events occurred when Happy Birthday was controlled by another music publisher called Summy Company, S-U-M-M-Y. Summy was the original music publisher that controlled the Hill Sisters' Good Morning to All and maybe Happy Birthday as well. Warner Chapel began to control Happy Birthday when they purchased Summit Company in 1988. The evidence that Warner Chapel presented to prove that they own the song were pieces of sheet music published by Summit in 1935. The lyrics to Happy Birthday were on that sheet music, but whether or not the lyrics were original at that time and deserved a new copyright is what Mark Rifkin challenged. Summit had two employees, one a guy named Preston Ware Orham, and the other a woman named R.R. Foreman. Interesting footnote, nobody knows her first name. Everybody refers to her as R.R. Foreman. So, so Mr. Orham and um, Mrs. Foreman uh, are hired to do piano arrangements. We knew that they did not write the song. They never claimed to write the song. And, and so we said, well, if they don't write the lyrics, and all they've done are piano arrangements, and the copyrights are limited to that, how can the copyright be anything else but the work they did, which is the piano arrangements? This whole case was more about an interpretation of the, of the two copyrights that Warner Chapel relied on than anything else. The two copyrights Mark Rifkin is referring to are what are known as derivative works because they derive from another copyright. Let me walk you through how this works. The Hill Sisters' song, Good Morning to All, is an original copyright because every aspect of it is new. The melody, the lyrics, and the musical arrangement are all believed to be original. 
The song Happy Birthday, because it borrows the melody from Good Morning to All, is not considered an original work. It is considered a derivative work because it uses aspects of another song. The borrowed parts of Happy Birthday are not copyrightable, but the new parts, in this case the lyrics, can be given a new copyright. The Happy Birthday lyrics are a total of five words. This entire court case is about who wrote those five new words, or, more specifically, did Summy Company's employees, Preston Ware Orem and R.R. Foreman, write those five words? Annoyingly, it's not really clear who did write those five words. Like we said before, there's kind of an authorship void. To fill this void, Warner Chapel points to the copyrights filed in 1935 that contained the words Happy Birthday. Warner Chapel says that because the lyrics are on the copy, they're entitled to the copyright. And Warner kept saying, but the lyrics are on the copy, the lyrics are on the copy, the lyrics are on the copy. And, and so we began by you know, trying to tell the judge, it doesn't matter what's on there. It's, it's all about what they claimed, what rights they had in this derivative work, and, and how could they claim a copyright in a work-for-hire that their employees didn't do. And we finally got them to admit that Orem and Foreman did not write the words. While Mark Rifkin was battling to prove his negative fact, Jennifer Nelson was observing the long trial patiently. Sometimes, though, she had second thoughts about her decision. I mean, our lawsuit has been called, you know, compared to David and Goliath and had that association. And I certainly understand that. And, um, you know, it's sort of flattering. But did I think that that was the case at the time? No. I mean, I just felt like I have to do what's right. I mean, of course, it was intimidating and... Um, and daunting, and I, and I, you know, I, I fretted and worried, and I didn't know if this was the right thing, and I was, you know, I had several panic attacks, and <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting in for. But it, it's about at the end of the day, it was like this is wrong, and we have a lot of facts to prove that they're wrong. The process took over two years. Two years filled with endless research, arguments, counter-arguments, panic attacks, and long periods of waiting patiently while the court was adjourned and the judge was quiet. Finally, on September 22, 2015, after both sides had finished making their case, the judge issued his ruling. He says the plaintiffs have proven beyond any dispute that Summy never owned rights to the lyrics, Happy Birthday to You. Therefore, the copyright Summy obtained in 1935 could only cover the piano arrangements. When Warner acquired Summy in 1988, it got only whatever rights Summy had, and those rights were limited just to the piano arrangements, not the familiar lyrics, Happy Birthday to You. Warner Chapel does not own a copyright to the song, Happy Birthday to You. It should be pointed out that the judge did not rule that the song is in the public domain. He simply ruled that Warner Chapel doesn't own it. As long as no one else claimed to own the song, that was as good as being in the public domain. But this could cause some trouble down the road. Either way, after two years of hard work, all the effort Jennifer Nelson's team put into the case finally paid off. You would think that the news would inspire pop champagne bottles jumping up and down in an immediate celebration. But comically, Jennifer Nelson didn't hear about the news right away. <laughs> Well, this is a funny story, actually, because, of course, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for this decision, and there's been so much anticipation, and, you know, I'd email Mark and Randy every day, like, do we hear anything? Do we hear anything? And then it'd be like, crickets, you know? And um, so then you, like, 
forget about it because otherwise, you know, you're going to go crazy. So I, you just go about your day and, you know, try not to think about it. So actually I was at the gym and um, I hadn't checked my phone for hours and I, I was walking home at, at night and it was like 9.30 and um, I finally checked my phone and it, it was blowing up. I mean, Mark and Randy had called me like seven times and I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? So I... I called Mark and I was like, what's going on? He's like, we won. Where have you been? I've been trying to call you for hours. And I was like, what? Are you serious? <laughs> I mean, I, I was just, I was shocked. I was stunned. I mean, they have filed the case that, um, or the, the judge filed the decision at uh, five o'clock LA time. So it was eight o'clock New York time. And I didn't get the message until nine thirty. So those guys were, uh, celebrating an hour and a half before I even knew, so... <laughs> no, actually, we didn't celebrate that night. It came in kind of late, but it, was, it wasn't until the next day that we had a chance to really sort of let it all sink in and, and uh, enjoy it a little bit. We did celebrate the next night, though. We uh, we had a toast to the hills, um, we ate cake, <laughs> and um, we had a moment of celebration before we, we go back into battle. While they ate birthday cake in honor of their victory, the world celebrated with them. Just like after they announced the lawsuit, the judges' ruling lit up the newspapers all over the world. The public domain advocates and common people alike all praised the decision. Even the comedian Stephen Colbert weighed in again, this time from his new show on CBS. Now, until recently, the copyright for Happy Birthday to You was owned by Warner Music Group, who charged people to use it. And it generated approximately $2 million in royalties every year. And they were so voracious about enforcing their copyright, the Girl Scouts were once warned they would have to pay a fee if campers sang it. And the Girl Scouts were eventually busted singing it around the campfire by Warner's undercover lawyer. The good news... A few weeks ago, a federal judge ruled that all of the happy birthday song copyright claims were invalid, meaning now everyone and anyone can sing the actual happy birthday to you for free. So we have decided, we here at The Late Show have decided to celebrate that by recording a special version of the birthday song just for you. The following video can be used by anybody as long as they were born on a day. I had a reporter from London ask me, so how does it feel to think that you might actually free the happy birthday song? And I was like, huh, wow. You know, I hadn't really thought about it like that. I just, I had to step back and think, I don't know. How does that feel? It feels right. You know, the song, I mean, it's really not about me, right? It's the song belongs to the people. It belongs to the public. And we think that the Hills wanted it like that. We think that they gave up the song for the public long ago, and that's where it should be, and the fact that it is now back in the hands of the people, we think that's where it should be, and that, that feels really great. I mean, that feels, it just feels right. Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Thank you. And I want you to know we really mean that. Unfortunately, lawsuits take a long time to conclude. Even though this one has been going on for over two years, there are actually a few more phases of the trial left. So there's still a lot left. So even though this decision is huge, it's a huge step, and it definitely puts us in a certain direction and answers a lot of questions. 
it's not over yet. <laughs> the next step for the plaintiffs is to organize the class action portion of the lawsuit, meaning find all the people who paid Warner Chapel for Happy Birthday, going back as far as possible, maybe all the way to 1988, and try to get Warner to pay them back. Potentially, all that money that Jennifer Nelson watched my Super Sweet 16 pay to Warner, it might all be returned. Before that happens, Warner has the opportunity to appeal the decision, which can add a lot of time to the trial. But even if the appeals court upholds the decision that Warner Chapel does not own Happy Birthday, there is still the possibility that someone else does. It's not free from doubt whether Patti Hill, if she wrote the song, whether she or her successors, her heirs, own it. But I doubt very much that that would be the case. But I can't say that that's free from doubt. I taped these interviews with Jennifer Nelson and Mark Rifkin about two weeks after the judge made his decision. In the time between that recording and the release of this episode, something kind of crazy happened. Like a jarring plot twist in a cliched legal drama, that improbable possibility became a reality. When the Hill sisters passed away, in their will they left specific instructions as to who received the royalties for their songs. Through a series of family deaths and other complicated events, the Hill's interest in Happy Birthday was bequeathed to a non-profit organization called the Association for Childhood Education. The Association for Childhood Education works with the United Nations and gathers information about childhood education practices throughout the entire world. The charity was actually co-founded by one of the Hill sisters, Patty Hill, over 100 years ago, so it's not surprising they were willed the copyrights. After the judge made his ruling, the Association for Childhood Education stepped forward and claimed ownership of Happy Birthday. This changes things a bit. For observers, watching a self-financed documentary filmmaker take on a massive corporation, well, people knew which side to take. Things seemed black and white, but now there's a charity involved. Their core mission is to further early childhood education, which happens to be a cause the Hill sisters devoted their lives to. Royalties from Happy Birthday make up a significant portion of their budget, and losing that revenue could cripple the charity. For observers, the situation is a little less black and white now. But in the eyes of the law, these kinds of gray areas don't matter as much as facts and evidence. And there may be a piece of evidence that can prove definitively that Happy Birthday is in the public domain. It's a piece of sheet music. That sheet music was not easy to find, but surprisingly, only two months before the judge issued his ruling, it was Warner Chapel that led Mark Rifkin right to it. In early July, they produced 500 pages of documents that they said were mistakenly not produced earlier. And one of the documents in that group of documents was a 1927 publication of the song without a copyright notice. And so that made us go back. That was the like the 14th edition of uh, the Everyday Songbook. And so that made us go back and and get the earlier editions of the book. And we found a 1922 edition of the book, which uh, was printed with Summy's permission, but without a copyright notice. Um, they never explained why they didn't produce the document earlier. That's that, that's all I can say about it. Although Warner Chapel took their time producing the songbook, it may be just the smoking gun that the plaintiffs need to prove that Happy Birthday is in the public domain. The fact that it's missing its copyright notice may have divested the song of its copyright. The year the book was published, 1922, might put it in the public domain due to its age. There are a few ways this thing might play out. Some journalists even speculate that this case might go all the way to the United States Supreme Court. 
The next phase of this court case begins in mid-December 2015, and so I leave all of you out there in podcast land, or podville as I like to call it, with a cliffhanger, a to-be-continued. Hopefully in the near future there will be a follow-up episode with updates about the court case. And so that brings us to our last order of business. What does all this mean for Jennifer Nelson's documentary? The release of the film, which is for now titled The Happy Birthday Movie, has not been scheduled yet. It should be released sometime in 2016, but honestly, at this point, it doesn't matter when the film gets released. When the former downhill mountain bike racer chose to fight this uphill battle, Jennifer Nelson had already achieved something most other documentarians do not. Her film began as a historical documentary about Happy Birthday, and regardless of how the court case ultimately turns out, I think it's safe to say that Jennifer Nelson has become part of the history that she was trying to document. That's it for this episode of Between the Liner Notes. If you would like to listen to more great stories about music, we have a recommendation for you. It's a podcast called Revivalism. The hosts ramble around the United States and speak to musicians they find busking on the street. The stories the buskers tell are really something. But anyway, this episode was produced and edited by me, Matthew Billy. Jason Silverman created the graphics and website. Laura Vandiver assisted with production. The jazzy piano and bluesy guitar music was supplied by Kelly Athena. You can find her music on iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify. Special thanks to Jennifer Nelson for being my guest. For more information about her and her documentaries, you can visit jen-nelson.com. Jen has two N's. Also thanks to Mark Rifkin. For more information about him and his law firm, Wolf Haldenstein, you can visit whafh.com. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. You can also find us at our website, betweenthelinernotes.com, Facebook, and Twitter. Feel free to write to us. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, and please leave us an iTunes rating. They really help a lot. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Between the Liner Notes.